You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. This episode... The finest moments in my career have actually been when nothing happened. We prevented something bad from getting worse. Norman Rule, a 34-year CIA veteran who was the former U.S. National Intelligence Manager for Iran and a fellow with the Intelligence Project, talks about the culture at the CIA, Yemen, and theater. For more insightful conversations with experts from the Belfer Center and beyond, subscribe to Office Hours on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Here's host, Arup Mukherjee. You've spent 34 years in the CIA. Uh, You are no longer in the CIA, but you'd spent 34 years in it. Did you love keeping secrets as a kid? I loved uh, observing things. I loved looking uh, for details that other people may not have found relevant. And I loved putting together uh, uh, sort of assessments. We would call them assessments, but it was more of my own ideas as to why things around me were working the way they were. And I also like to be able to predict what was going to happen in a conversation. So what do you mean by that? If I understood uh, how people were feeling, how they were acting, what they wanted, I was usually able to understand where they wanted to go with an issue or a conversation. I really, really enjoyed that as a kid. And so is that is that an element you think that contributed to your interest in the CIA as a career? Well, I, I should say I, the, the, the agency actually uh, approached me many years ago. I was an undergraduate in college. I was taking um, uh, course overloads. I think I graduated with enough uh, uh, credits for several bachelor's degrees. <laughs> I was in multiple clubs, and I had a guidance counselor say there are some people in Washington with whom you should meet. And I was actually hired as an undergraduate, and they wanted me to begin uh, a few weeks after I graduated from college, but I had no car, one suit, no apartment, no furniture, no money, and had yet to marry the love of my life. Uh, so I, I got them to uh, post th- postpone things for a few months and went into a summer stock theater uh, and uh, enjoyed myself for a few months after I got married. What kind of theater are we talking about? Drama, comedies of the 1920s and 30s is something I, I enjoy, and I, I was able to perform a bit with uh, with the college and local community theater for uh, several months before the um, agency picked me up and I joined the theater of the real. Am I right to assume that the CIA does not have uh, an improv troupe or a theater group within the CIA itself? Well, they have a choir. I don't. I think we Do have. Really? A, we have. A, we have a pretty large improv troupe. I think it's the entire. Uh, Directorate of Operations. Uh, I think that's what we do. We did for a living when I until my retirement. So you were a history major in college, is that right? I was a student of interwar diplomatic history. In fact, my ambition in life was to become an academic uh, and to teach uh, interwar diplomatic history. My fascination was with the League of Nations, and and it, it it actually was a great preparation for the intelligence world because the League of Nations and diplomacy in the 1920s and 30s depended so heavily on singleton individuals. Uh, two quick stories. There was once a U.S. diplomat named Prentice Bailey Gilbert. He received the first encrypted telephone call from a secretary of state, and it was also the subject, I believe, of the first encrypted I can't hear you call is breaking up excuse, and he used that to ignore um, uh, instructions from Secretary of State Simpson to vote against the uh, Japanese invasion of Manchuria in, I think, the only vote the U.S. participated in in the in the League of Nations. But that period is replete with uh, stories of extraordinary personalities and the absurdity of war that was approaching and the failure of diplomacy, the consequences of of, of appeasement. Uh, uh, it was it, it, it's something that, frankly, uh, motivated me to uh, look at international uh, policy, foreign policy. 
to, and was it to restore um, a degree, international peace? Was that what you were guided by? Were those the sort of ideals uh, that you were you wanted to? You looked at this period of volatility and thought, you know, we we can get back to a to a more peaceful time. No, I actually think it was it's something more along the lines of this could get worse if people don't take steps to prevent things from getting really bad. And I've often um, said half seriously that the most expensive thing uh, for the intelligence community to produce, which it does um, with some regularity, is actually nothing. You want nothing to happen. You want no war. You want no terrorist event. You want no problem on the president's plate. And nothing requires a tremendous amount of effort, not a lot of money, but a lot of innovation, uh, physical risk, and advanced planning. So as much as people talk about intelligence successes and failures, I think that uh, my career, the, the, the finest moments in my career have actually been when nothing happened. We prevented something bad from getting worse. It's the dog that doesn't bark, but people don't know that it's that effective when nothing happens. Is that a risk? Well, it doesn't play well in movies, but there's an awful like I know several times in my career of, of military conflicts that did not occur because of intelligence. I know of multiple terrorist events that didn't occur because of intelligence. I know of foreign actors' um, machinations that were blunted, prevented, and even manipulated into a positive direction simply because policymakers, wise policymakers, made wise decisions with, with great intelligence that was obtained at enormous risk by multiple players in the intelligence community, not just the Central Intelligence Agency, but the uh, great players at NSA or the, Na the National Security Agency, the National Geospatial Agency, uh, as well as analysts from the Office of Naval Intelligence, etc. You, you spent so much time in your career in, in, in the Middle East, uh, 15 years abroad, uh, and but, but before getting into that, um, I'm struck by this idea that that you were recruited um, as a as a student as a student spotted might be a better word spotted let's let's use that word um, as a history student um, you know there's such an obsession today with quantitative analysis and in in policy in policy schools even even the Kennedy School uh, and and I'm I'm wondering I Ash Carter who's the of course the former Secretary of Defense and the and the director of the Belfer Center once said and one of the smartest men alive he is <laughs> it's staggering um one of the one of the things he said maybe it was a year ago was that real policymakers think in terms of historical analogies not always correctly but they think in terms of history and and I was wondering as an intelligence officer did you find that also to be the case did history either play a role methodologically or did people you were surrounded by, um, did they think in those terms? Absolutely. So I've worked with uh, multiple national security councils and presidential administrations. And in every one of those discussions, the ability to bring together uh, a sense of what happened the last time we saw this movie uh, was critical. Uh, and in fact, on the occasions where we didn't have that capacity, I think we had some of the most difficult and uh, perhaps challenging de decision making. Um, I would put a plug in here for uh, Graham Allenson's Applied History Program, which I think is something that should be replicated throughout the United States. Uh, when I was uh, uh, young, we had diplomatic history, which in some ways attempted to do the same thing. Now we just we're just trying to say this movie played out before. So what were the strategic drivers that brought actors to this place? Those same drivers are in place now. You should prepare for um, uh, solutions. Since joining the CIA and, and, and after leaving it, did you see or, or witness a change in culture at all within the organization? 
Oh, sure. Absolutely. In fact, in my, my early days, it was the Cold War. Um, in my early days, uh, well, I, I was in the Middle East at a time when I could speak to people who carried the entire Saudi budget in, 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 as, young, as youths in, in saddlebags. I could speak to people who remembered uh, parents talking about Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, Arab nationalism was a big deal. Then the Cold War ended and we had the War on Terror. Uh, and the war on terror took us into some very new places. And I think the problem there is we've had a number of people join the intelligence community to fight in the war on terror, whereas the actual role of intelligence, it's, it's elegant, it's slow, it's, um, um, uh, it's something usually the best work is usually when you don't see, you don't see happening. Um, and this isn't always meant for people. So we've had a number of people join heroic people, I should say, who've made, um, uh, repeated, uh, trips to war zones, for example, but they've found that the rest of the agency was not their cup of tea and they, and they left and we should be grateful for their service and the American people thankful for their heroism. Are there things about the culture of the CIA that you think could change for the better still? Well, I suppose that's true. The CIA's uh, agility is something we pride ourselves on um, uh, for good reason. I think uh, the ability of CIA to draw upon as diverse a population of Americans as possible, and I don't just mean ethnic diversity or uh, gender diversity, but also on economic diversity, um, uh, is what you're looking for in intelligence is different perspectives on a problem. Uh, that's something that is, is a constant challenge. When the, when the organization was originally formed, it was the OSO Social Club, OSS, of primarily Ivy League graduates. I am not an Ivy League graduate. Went to a fine college in southwestern Pennsylvania, Washington and Jefferson College. And uh, uh, I think that perspective allowed me to bring things to the, the table which were important. So I, I would, my, my point is the agency always needs a diverse population. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you brought from uh, habits and things you brought from the CIA to your uh, life outside of intelligence today? Um, you know, or is there a vocabulary that you use? Do you call uh, menus at restaurants, food briefings? No, I don't take vacation. I've, I have my last uh, vacation uh, uh, would have been, I think, 2010. The my agency God. often is a, and I'm very happy with that. Um, I'm a little little maybe extreme in that even for the agency but uh, intelligence is a seven day a week job um rest is for the dead um and um uh, i found that since i left that i still don't i don't really know what a vacation is and i'm i'm almost afraid of it so i work pretty much seven days a week as a business consultant or speaker or writer and i'm delighted with that schedule and i think my wife is delighted that i'm kept busy the whole time too <laughs> well where do you get your news i mean as an intelligence per, you know officer you get you well you have more intelligence you have you have access to information that other people don't have access to what do you do now well, I first of all, I I, I assiduously um, um, uh, scour uh, uh, open sources for a couple of things, perspectives. So I listen to podcasts such as this one. This tells me what I should be thinking about and issues that I should look at. And then I look for the data points, which are often in the open source world, but I travel to the region frequently. Um, I've been in Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates uh, on a number of occasions in re recent months, and I've met with uh, very senior officials, and I've walked the streets to talk to the average citizen uh, and I developed my own um, uh, data uh, at that point I'm also uh, um, in touch with a number of former um, uh, let's say diplomatic colleagues uh, and uh, who are also active in the region so there is a there is a circle of data well so let's 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 get into that now um, of course as I mentioned you you spent much of your career focused uh, on the Middle East um, and you were um, 
you were the national intelligence manager for Iran uh, in, at the office of, of the director of uh, national intelligence um, until 2017. Why is the Middle East so important to the United States? Why, uh, why does it matter? I'm going to hit this from a, a direction that I think perhaps your listeners might find surprising because the easy answer is energy, oil. Uh, I think of the future. Uh, when we talk about why Saudi Arabia is important, I think Saudi Arabia is important for what it could bring to the table. We're looking at populations that are, 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 are very interested in education. We want to improve women's rights in the region. Uh, and uh, they want to develop technologies and uh, uh, an economy that has moved away from oil. They're also in a very strategic geographic position. Uh, the Red Sea, which is to the left of uh, Saudi Arabia, has more than 14% of the globe's trade. I think about 12% of the world's oil of, of rice, about four and a half million barrels of oil a day. If you control the Red Sea uh, mouth and the Strait of Hormuz, you've got about half the oil floating in the world every day. This touches the GDP, the employment of the United States, the uh, economic uh, stability of Europe. Um, let alone the uh, issue of, um, of the role of Islam in the world. So when we talk about, again, looking at Saudi Arabia as a potential success, uh, potential success story, you want them to moderate Islam into a more inclusive uh, religion for the world because the impact of that is uh, less terrorism. Finally, I'd like to end future wars in the Middle East. We had an American war in Iraq that people talked about being unilateral. How did that work out? We had a European-led war where the Americans were in the rear in Libya. How did that work out? We finally had a war led by Arab partners, which we supported in Yemen. How did that work out? Wars in the Middle East consume armies, reputations, calendars. We've got to find a way to end that and bring economic stability because millions are suffering as a result. Sometimes I have difficulty telling whether or not the U.S. is leaning in or leaning away. Uh, of course, we... Um, uh, Trump announced a month, several weeks ago about the pulling out of uh, U.S. Uh, troops in Syria. Um, at the same time, pressure, uh, uh, you know, the, the Iran-U.S. Um, relationship seems like it's at a nadir. Uh, and I, I can't quite tell where the U.S. is going in, 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 in this region. So let me provide some perspective. In 1983, Iran used surrogates to attack our embassy and embassies in, in Beirut and kill hundreds of Americans and French servicemen, perhaps women. Uh, did you see a war in the Middle East at that point? What was the American involvement in the 1980s? It's restraint. Okay, so we had in the 90s, we had Khobar, we had uh, a variety of, of, of terrorist actions, regional. Did you see significant American involvement in the 90s? What you saw, I think there, when people talk about pulling out of the region, other than the Iraq war, which is a real anomaly for the United States, because we don't seek to control the region's resources. We just seek to guarantee universal access to those resources. We, we really have had a hands-off approach in terms of large armies or large uh, 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 diplomatic efforts for the region for many years. Of course, the peace process would be a separate problem, but uh, for quite a few years, we've had quite a few peace plans that have gone marched up that hill and they've come down disappointed, but that doesn't mean they weren't valiant efforts. 
Well, and the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, at least. And the um, first Gulf War, of course. And, um, well, we also supported, I mean, the Iran-Iraq War. We didn't support, or we didn't have armies there, but the United States was involved. Modest um, support, and only at a portion, uh, at, at one point of the conflict. But when we talk about supporting Saddam, I can assure you there was no desire to support Saddam Hussein, but there was plenty of desire to, prov- to ensure that the Iranians didn't invade the GCC. Uh, so I think there was an effort of making sure that this revolutionary regime, which had taken Americans hostage, which had the most uh, vicious of rhetoric, didn't achieve its goals in the region. That is often lost when people talk about why the United States had a role with, with Iraq. To summarize what you're saying, at least what I'm getting, is that the U.S. should be interested and engaged, but not to the point of violence or not to the point of, of armies and wars, um, that we cannot control the region. It is an important region, but we should be maybe more diplomatically engaged. Is that is that what I'm getting? Diplomacy has a role, but you, for a policymaker, you generally have, and I'm sure your policy guests will think I'm a little, little too uh, cartoonish here. You have dip- diplomacy, sanctions, and a military conflict, maybe some variations on each in the middle. Uh, let's take Iran for an example. Uh, do you think diplomacy will get Iran out of Syria, Yemen, and cease their missile firings? Are you in favor of a war with Iran? Sounds like all we've got left are sanctions. So you've got a variety of tools, but we want to avoid a military conflict, not just because of the, 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 the cost in American lives and treasure, but because of what it does to the people in the region and what it, what, Wars have secondary consequences that no one can predict. That's not an intelligence problem. That's a mystery. What's shifting right now in the Middle East that the U.S. should be paying attention to? There seem to be shifting dynamics vis-a-vis the Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, rivalry, um, even fissures within the GCC. Let me take this up a little bit. I think you've got in the Middle East a couple of things that I've paid attention to. First, you have an aging leadership that's about to change. If we were to go through the Middle East and we were to talk about the leadership of Algeria, Tunisia, uh, maybe uh, 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 if, let's say it's a different way. If I were to say in the Middle East, give, uh, describe the places where you have leaders over the age of 78 and ill health, I would name the following. Algeria, Tunisia, Oman, um, UAE, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, uh, Ayatollah Sistani in Najaf, uh, Michel Aoun in Lebanon. In the next couple of years, you're going to see a change in leadership. And if we're lucky, we will rece- we will have dynamic leaders who are trying to transform their countries. We might get leaders who are just uh, uh, keeping the status quo, and that's bad because we've had uh, unrest in Iran, Jordan, Iraq, uh, Sudan, Tunisia in the last year that show the seeds of the Arab Spring are there. But worst, we could get. Well, theoretically, a Gaddafi. Can you tell me something like that won't happen? So we have to watch this upcoming inflection point of leadership very carefully. But there's some great news in the Middle East. We're so used to talking about bad news. Yeah, let's talk about some good news. Women are empowered throughout the region. People feel much more uh, open to protest. And there are protests from Morocco to Iran that happen every day. Social media is transforming the region's sense of, 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 of nationality, a uh, sense of identity. You've got a population shift. Uh, most of the region is increasingly under the age of 35 or 25. And how they view the world and the world's problems are very different. Um, you've got a, a, a desire for, for change. If there's a problem in the region... 
They don't have a lot of money. Foreign direct investment is down across the region. Um, uh, you have broken states, uh, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, um, and Libya, of course, and they need to be sustained. If not, they become a fertile ground for ISIS 2.0 or for Iranian um, uh, surrogates. So there are a number of challenges, but uh, the, the region is moving away from oil. The region is moving towards renewable. The region is moving towards technology. You go to the GCC, and it's a sink. It's a gravity sink for technology and for uh, uh, new industries that, that it's very promising. So I think uh, we spend maybe too much time talking about the bad news of the Middle East because we're comfortable with that. But I'm, I'm generally optimistic about the region. Do these, do these facts and these trends change how the U.S. should be looking at its alliances uh, and partnerships in the region? Does it change the way the U.S. should be investing its resources? What does the U.S. do with all these impending uh, changes in society? So we have to recognize some, some realities. The um, uh, traditional structures have less weight than they did in the past. Doesn't mean they're not important. Doesn't mean they shouldn't be more important. But the Arab League, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the Organization of the Islamic Conference, they have less weight in the past. You're watching new relations of uh, Bahrain, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Iraq, I'm sorry, uh, Egypt. Uh, they're, that's a brand new collection of states that we've got to better understand how to, how to, how to work with. Uh, I think we have to also re- recognize we must play a role in restoring stability to Syria, Yemen, and Libya, and Iraq, or we're going to have to accept that there will be uh, 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 there, there will be ISIS 2.0, there will be some Islamic extremism that will that will pop up in this territory, and we we would have played a role in encouraging that simply because we didn't attempt to bring stability. Now that gets into nation building. No one likes that phrase. Nobody wants to do it. It's expensive and genuinely unsuccessful, but there's room for a European Arab American partnership um, under local leadership. Uh, They know their problems best. And if we don't do this, whoa, whoa, whoa on us. How do you see that actually playing out? Concretely, I, oh. I said I see, I see. There's a need for it, but I don't. <laughs> I don't actually see this playing out in the near term. Uh, people are consumed with their own problems. There's a uh, a fear that we will be drawn into expensive um, um, uh, uh, adventures. Uh, there is very little uh, public support um, uh, in the United States for further involvement in the Middle East. Generally, uh, diplomatic efforts by either the left or the right in the United States immediately uh, produces a, uh, a flood of social media bile from one side against the other. Uh, Europe has uh, um, has withdrawn from the region. Uh, you, you, it's very difficult to get Europe to recognize or comments on Iran's missile attacks, for example, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, think about it. 216 missiles from Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah have been fired into a country with thousands of Europeans and Americans that's extraordinary, but you can't, you really don't see the international community responding here. Finally, I would close by saying the Russians are just not helpful in the United Nations Security Council, and I don't see that changing in the near term, but we, we still should do this, and this is why God made the heroes at the State Department and uh, uh, the policy world to continue to push that stone up, the, up that hill. Well, they're, they're, the Europeans and, and the Americans, too, are constrained. Uh, I mean, Saudi Arabia isn't helping itself with the its human rights records so how does how do you it's not it, it seems like it's a little more there's an extra layer of of constraint there that the there can be yeah. but again if i turn to you and say uh, uh as a leader of any european country do you have a responsibility to protect your people the answer is yes the answer isn't yes but the local country has human rights issues that are of my of concern 
there are missiles landing in this area. One of the interesting things about the Middle East is I think all your listeners and you would agree we want to avoid a conventional war in the Middle East. Do you agree? I agree. Absolutely. We want to stop that. So we've had 300 Israeli airstrikes on Iranian facilities in Syria. Would you call that an air war? We've had 216 missile strikes from um, uh, Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah enabled from Yemen on uh, uh, on Saudi Arabia. Missile war. We've had attacks on U.S., uh, Saudi, Emirati, and I believe other shipping in the Red Sea. And finally, you, you have Iranian and, and surrogate forces throughout the Middle East on the ground. Sounds like we have a war that's just been disaggregated, and for that reason, it just doesn't get a lot of attention. So one of the issues that I often talk about is we have a conflict in the Middle East. We want to make sure it doesn't become a hotter conflict. Is there a misunderstanding about where U.S. weapons and funding to Saudi Arabia is going? Because you could make the argument that the U.S. is also contributing to this conflict. Right. So you, this is a very emotional and hard issue. Um, to be to be clear, I believe the U.S. should support the Saudis in this conflict, but I want to explain explain why um, uh, we need to end the war. But if we can provide either intelligence, uh, weapons, the types of weapons that ensure minimal civilian casualties. I think we have a moral responsibility to do that because if we don't, you the for the Saudis they can't have Iranian missiles. 400 miles from Mecca or on the Red Sea. I mentioned all the the value of the Red Sea. They can't sustain, so they can't not fight this conflict any more than if we had the Soviets in Mexico in the 1980s that we could say, well, we won't fight the conflict because of what it might do in the Gulf of Mexico. I think we have a responsibility to both prevent that conflict diplomatically, but if the Saudis must do this, they have been partners for many years, we have to reduce civilian casualties. Two more quick points on this. We also should get behind uh, the international effort to demonize mine Yemen. Yemen has got hundreds of thousands of mines that will kill thousands of Yemeni civilians in the future. Uh, this this is, requires an international effort for us to, uh, to just to save these people. And of course, to ensure food aid is reaching the many um, um, uh, uh, Yemenis who are enduring this terrific near famine conditions. But I, I think we need to be involved in this because if we don't, it will continue. And the victims in the end are going to be the Yemeni civilians. So my eye is on what keeps Yemeni civilians alive and healthy. And so what what do you feel is a, I mean, you said you're both optimistic about the region, but also you said the things that need to happen from the U.S. Uh, side, of, or generally with, with the various governments involved, you don't see those happening in the near term. So what do you see as the realistic best and worst case scenarios in the next year or two where i mean which? so let's let's say uh iran and saudi arabia we well, often talk about um there a rivalry between iran and saudi arabia i don't understand that a rivalry are two people who are who want the same thing um, there has never been a point in Saudi history where they have attempted to control uh damascus the last time they ch- attempted to control iraq was 1808 uh the Saudis have no interest in, in in establishing surrogate governments inside of their, their neighboring states. They want good relations and maybe even compliant policies from those governments. But Hafez al-Assad, Saddam Hussein, and 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 the and the president of Yemen existed for many years, and that was not a problem. Iran is putting different creatures into the regime. They're putting Hezbollah-type elements out there. I think our problem is we have to find a way to um, uh, to have these these elements in these societies drawn back into their into their uh, uh, nation states. You have at least seven groups who are beholding to Iran. We've got to find a way to pull those into to to Iraqi nationalism and not Iranian loyalty. Do you see that because you don't see such a 
deep schism. Does that give you optimism about their relationship? No, it doesn't. It But it gives me optimism that neither uh, will seek a direct war in the near future. A surrogate war is most likely. Iran has succeeded in moving the the the, the front lines of its, of its conflict with its neighbors to its neighbors' doorsteps. So you have the Saudis fighting Yemenis who are enabled by the Iranians, but the Iranians escape all this. The same with the Israelis in Syria. Iran is not part of this. I see that conflict continuing and being a danger and a an unlucky strike by the Houthis or the or or uh, or the Hezbollah could promote a broader regional conflict, unfortunately. But what I really worry about is if Iran doesn't get a sense of what a red line is, we can t- we can say the Saudis understand Khashoggi was a terrible mistake. They have a red line. Uh, they, Yemen is a bad thing. They have a red line. But what is a red line for Iran in the region? And I think our policy community and the great minds at Harvard need to think, how do you convey what an actual red line is to a country like Iran? And if not, they might actually miscalculate and go beyond what they think is not a red line and and invoke on our side that conventional conflict we all hope to avoid. Yeah, well, let's hope we can avoid that conventional conflict. Uh, Norm, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's been... uh, very illuminating and, and, and fun to talk to you. My pleasure. I look forward to chatting with you again and good luck with the podcast. This is this. I enjoyed being a, being a listener. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 